If you're like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. And our next sponsor has provided us with some very interesting facts we would like to pass on to you. Fact number one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stain, then restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for most, it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone. Fact two, teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact number three, tooth sensitivity is a result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch to. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact number five, the key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as a whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the other is a device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect the crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they're bulky and they don't create a seal. Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for under $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is a custom-fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600, or you could head on over to smilebrilliant.com and use their lab direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you'd pay at the dentist. And um, if you're like me and you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom bit at night guards. Once again, for a fraction of the price, dentists charge. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use coupon code AGATHA, A-G-A-T-H-A, for an exclusive All About Agatha discount. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And in this episode, we are not actually discussing a work by Agatha Christie. This is one of our interview episodes where we get to check in with contemporary mystery authors, many of whom, most of whom, have just as much regard for Agatha Christie as we do. And I'm happy to say that that is definitely the case with our interview subject du jour. Who did we have the pleasure, the honor of speaking with, Catherine? John Copenhaver, who has a new book out called The Savage Kind, which we very much enjoyed. And as we'll note in the episode, it is the first in a trilogy. 
we were big fans of it and are very happy to have had the opportunity to talk to him. All right, let's get right into it. We use the word delightful a lot on our podcast. Some might even say we overuse it, in fact. But I'm going to go ahead and say that we have a delightful interview ahead of us because it is our pleasure to be talking with the delightful John Copenhaver today. John is the author of the historical crime novel Dodging and Burning, which won the McCavity Award for Best First Mystery Novel. It also garnered Anthony Strand Critics, Barry, and Lambda Literary Award nominations. He writes a crime fiction review column for Lambda Literary called Blacklight, in which column, incidentally, he wrote a lovely review of our very own podcast. Uh, Just piling on the accomplishments here, he's been published in numerous literary magazines and journals. He is the six-time recipient of artist fellowships from the Washington, D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. And perhaps I'm saving the best for last, but he is also a teacher, English teacher, in addition to all of this. Uh, And of course, he is a massive Agatha Christie fan. And John is out with a new book called The Savage Kind, which is a brilliant reworking of the noir genre with uh, more than one nod in it to not just noir, but the detective fiction genre that we all love so well. Uh, We are going to get into that and more in just a moment. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me on. It's just such a treat. Um, I'm a huge fan of this podcast, if that weren't already apparent. <laughs> and I've listened to at least every episode that you've done on uh, one of Christie's novels. It's just so fascinating. So it's it's it, it's delightful for me to be here. <laughs> We're just going to use the word delightful as much as possible. We I could think. continue to roll it out, right? <laughs> you know what? Like, it's, it's November, like... <laughs> It's like, let's just embrace this sort of joyfulness. Uh, You know, it's the holiday season, right? Yeah. (laughs) Let's embrace the delight. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't normally quote from an author's acknowledgments page, but you begin your acknowledgments with a sort of explanation of what your intentions were in writing this book. And I'm going to quote you on that right now, because I think it's actually a great way to frame our conversation about the savage kind. So this is what you write. The Savage Kind pays homage to and reimagines the femme fatale character from classic American crime fiction and the great films noir of the 1940s and 1950s. I've always had a strong affinity and sympathy for these kinds of characters. As a gay man, I've experienced a degree of the oppressiveness of our patriarchal culture, which often belittles and vilifies feminine characteristics and sensibilities. When I read these novels or watched these films, I saw the femme fatales doing illegal and immoral things, but sensed that just under the surface, they were struggling to find agency. After all, these women were strong, intelligent, and witty. Why shouldn't they have more power? Why did the men around them inhibit them? Why were they consistently punished by the narrative in which they found themselves? I always rooted for them, even if that wasn't the intention of the story. And boy, you hit on another favorite word of our podcast, which of course would be agency. Right, Catherine? Oh, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we talk about it, of course, all of the time and why crime novels and mystery fiction, you know, get dismissed, right? And it's one of the things that we harp on the most, probably, yeah. or at least I do. What I found most interesting about this is that because you're doing noir, I, we talk all the time about the sort of comparison, you know, with Edmund Wilson with Boys in the Back Room versus like, why do people read detective novels or who cares who murdered Roger Ackroyd? And you are taking the tropes of noir 
mm-hmm. but they're applied to women. Mm-hmm. And like sympathetically, I think to women in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. And I sincerely appreciated that because I thought it was a different and important take on how we read noir. Mm-hmm. So, because I mean, I think that you can look at something like Mildred Pierce or, you know, I mean, that would be like a big one. I I love Mildred Pierce. It's one of my favorites, but it's also problematic in ways. So, of course, it's problem. They're all. (laughs) They all are right. (laughs) It's it's the elevation of the noir novel above the detective novel that has always been problematic to me. Mm. But this seems to be doing a really good job at balancing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know, my intention so much for the novel was to create a conversation, I guess. Maybe it's a conversation I have inside myself a little bit with my love for noir, particularly classical noir uh, fiction. And of course, the great films noir of the 1940s and early 50s but also a critique a little bit or a story that serves as a critique, I guess, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. And I, I think that there is something pretty queer about it too, because I think I really wanted to investigate why I was always re- rooting for the femme fatale, right? Why I was, I never wanted her quite to have the ending that she got <laughs> in a lot of those films and trying to kind of uh, explore what it is in me that is attracted to that kind of retelling. And then, you know, the problems with it culturally, particularly from that time period, but honestly, we're still fighting those, those kinds of portrayals of women. They're framed a little differently, but they're still there in detective fiction and in other forms. It's a kind of outsider narrative. Yeah. Ultimately. Right. And yes. so that makes total sense why sort of the queering of it tracks, because, you know, you're looking at usually women who are trying to, again, assert their agency in right. these stories. Mm-hmm. And that is inappropriate within their domestic framework. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's completely. I mean, it's not, it's like, they're totally transgressive within these roles, you know? I mean, they're sort of seductive because they're transgressive, but they're also like, I mean, this story is always, they're going to get punished and then often get murdered, you know, or killed. And um, I think that, you know, the, the overall message is that, you know, in the traditional stories that that's, we want to make sure we rid ourselves of these, this type of evil woman. I'm putting that in quotes. It's a story that I feel pulled into because I love her power, but ultimately the being punished for the power, I think always bugged me. And I was like, and how am I as a gay man connected to that? You know, Mm -hmm. what is it? Why am I seeing that part of it's because women have been my role models in my life. They've been there for me. They've been my teachers. They've been my (laughs) parents. They've been, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that that's certainly playing into it on a personal level, but more on a social level. Like why, why do we do this? You know? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me is that it's like, I think that in a lot of ways we talk a lot about how in detective fiction, there's the idea that, 
you're um, excising the evil at the end of the story and justice is restored. And, you know, there's that sense almost of catharsis that a, that a reader can have in the restoration of peace, right? And the killing, or at least the marginalizing, the excising of the femme fatale, you could argue, um, is serving that role. But then there's kind of a disjunction there because often that is the character that when you're especially watching these movies, you identify with the most or find yeah. the most fascinating. And I happen to have recently rewatched Double Indemnity. Actually, oh, yeah. great. <laughs> I mean, best one. I mean, like, there's no, like, is there any question that's the best one? It's so, <laughs> Barbara Stanwyck, I mean, you watch Barbara Stanwyck and you were just immediately fascinated by this woman. I'm like, I could watch 10 hours about this woman. How yeah. did she become who she is? Tell me everything about her. You know, and that and we should mention, you know, a little bit, I think, more specifically what you're doing in your book, uh, The Savage Kind, John, especially for those listeners who haven't read it yet. And to be clear, we have both read it. We loved it. And we encourage you all to read it because I think any fan of the mystery genre in general is just going to have so much to think about after reading it. And what you're doing here is that you're focusing the story on two, not just one, but two yeah. quote unquote femme fatale characters. And you really double down on it because they are teenagers. So they are just coming into their own as people. So we have dual narrative perspectives here from two teenage girls. And there's an overarching framework in which we have this narrator. And we know that the narrator who's kind of editing and shepherding the story throughout this whole novel is one of those girls grown up. And she refuses to say which one she is at the outset. She's like, sorry, I'm just not going to tell you. You, you, you picked up a mystery. So guess what? It's going to be a mystery who I am until the end of the book. And you do tell us exactly who she is. We mm -hmm. do get an answer to that. It's very satisfying. And these two girls are wrapped up in a murder, maybe even more than one murder. And you have, you know, by some accounts, a very traditional murder mystery. It's just that given the perspective shifting you're doing here, vis-a-vis -vis femme fatales and the noir genre overall, it's an extremely interesting and unusual mystery, but I feel like you had your cake and you ate it too, because I got, <laughs> I got all of the pieces that I need for a satisfying mystery. But the whole time I was just like, this is unlike anything I've really read recently mystery wise. So I really just kudos to you. Um, and I think that can just help give a sense of kind of what you're doing and help frame our conversation for those of you who haven't read it yet, or maybe you want to pause this episode and then go out and buy it and read it and then come <laughs> back right now. <laughs> um, and please support your local independent book shop. Yes. That would be important. Um, Absolutely. Even yes. online, you can buy books online now through yeah, independent yeah. bookstores uh, very easily. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, you know, I mean, I, we should also, I mean, it's told, um, it's the, the unnamed narrator is basically serving as an archivist, right? Right. It's an assemblage of mm -hmm. pieces. And whether or not they're trustworthy or not is a question. But I did have to ask, what is your relationship to like epistolary novels? Because it is very similar to that too. And I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite books is Laclos's Les Liaisons Dangerous, you know, um, and mm -hmm. it's slippery. Mm -hmm. And that it reminded me a lot of, and I mean this in the absolute nicest <laughs> way. This is like a high compliment from me. It reminded me of Lacknose because that book is so 
well, dangerously slippery. Mm-hmm. And I think this uh, does a similar mm-hmm. thing. And I, I found the shifting of narrative and the uneasiness and the untrustworthiness of it to be really compelling. So I just wanted to know, like, where were you getting your inspiration from? So, I mean, lots of places, honestly. Um, I think all through the book, I have a lot of, I've woven in allusions to Gothic novels and Mm -hmm. chief among those is Wuthering Heights, which also is a little slippery too. And um, I love I love Wuthering Heights. It's one of my favorite novels of all time. Mine too. Kemper <laughs> is going to ask you a question in one second. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think that um, certainly that is part of the inspiration. I think that Margaret Atwood, who also adores writer, mm-hmm. uses perspective shifting and mm-hmm. uh, sort of archival evidence, essentially, in yeah. really compelling ways. And she symbols uh, Blind Assassin is one of my all-time favorite novels. And I think that it's just so fascinating because you get um, you get different perspectives. You also... I don't know. I guess my question is always, what is the truth? And I don't know that there's ever an answer for that. So to be the most honest as a writer is to try to structure something that doesn't actually fully answer what the truth is. But at the same time, I want the readers not to feel at loose ends and give them a, a satisfying ending. You know, if you squint, if you squint at the ending of actually both my books a little bit, um, they'll see that you may not, what you think, you know, you may not there may be evidence that is a little slippery, mm-hmm. but um, I think that I just think that's somewhat how we experience life. We're always trying to interpret and put our finger on it. And it always slips away about the time we do. And so I think that creating, you know, people telling their stories and then having those stories reframed, right. I love framing. And I think that, you know, but you have to be careful with framing because what is, what is that really doing? What is that telling you? You know, cause it's always about selection and mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, trick. Yeah. And so I just think that it's, it's, it's just, it's I, my, I guess ultimately it's a philosophical approach it, to be honest with you, sort of looking at, at that house, the slippery, the truth actually is. I have, I have fun with that. So. <laughs> Well, you're very, you're very upfront about the slipperiness of the yeah. truth, which is, is it's kind of a contradiction in terms, but the book, it, it's essentially a series of, of what seem to be diary entries, right? right? That have been sort of archived and and gathered together by this narrator who is one of these girls now grown up writing from a distance of several decades. And the book is set very specifically in the fall of 1948, which right. is of course also a great you know, noir period. Um, I, I love things set set in the in the forties, especially. It's just so I I loved the time, and you have a lot of fun even with the setting. J. Edgar Hoover makes an appearance. Yes. We've got the <laughs> the Truman Dewey election as, as a backdrop. It's really fun, and set in Washington D.C. Yeah, I appreciated that. I mean, I think that it's a very erudite book actually that references a lot of works of literature because these two girls, Philippa and Judy, those are our our 
two narrators. They are both brainy teenagers with a love of literature. They have an English teacher. Hmm, I wonder if you were drawing on <laughs> some uh, <laughs> real life inspirations there. Uh, her name is Miss M, Miss Martins. Uh, maybe she has other names. We'll find out. She figures very prominently in the story, but she supports and encourages their love of literature. And even though you say Wuthering Heights is one of your favorite books, I believe that the first direct reference we get Mm-hmm. of a classic work of, of literature in your book is from, oh yes, Jane Eyre. See, um, told you, told you, John. <laughs> so Philippa is the one who actually quotes Jane Eyre. It's the, I'm no bird and no net ensnares me. Love that line, of course. Um, and as you may know, as a fan of the podcast, Catherine and I have a long running joke about how there are Jane Eyre people in the world there are Wuthering Heights people in the world. Never <laughs> shall the twain meet. Though, you know, these two types of people will always appreciate each other since obviously there are people who like neither, even though I just find that hard to believe. Yeah, I, of course... talking to me, but... Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, the joke is always to me that Kemper's a Jane Eyre person. I'm a Wuthering Heights person. My mom is a Jane Eyre person. And oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's yeah. interesting information. Jane Eyre Mama Brobeck. Okay. Mama Brobeck is a Jane Eyre person. <laughs> In my yeah. camp. I love it. So, like, I think that we can, you know, commune. <laughs> <laughs> we can absolutely commune. And it actually strikes me, and I, I wonder if you would agree with this. I think that the sort of bifurcation works for Philippa and Judy. I mean, Philippa is 100% a Jane Eyre person, and oh. Judy is Wuthering Heights, don't you think? Yeah, I like that a lot. I never thought of that, but you're 100%. That's accurate. That's totally accurate. That's how they would split down the middle. I I guess I'm a a Wuthering Heights guy, but ultimately I love them both. And no, you, know, you have uh, to pick. I'm sorry. I have you to pick. Oh my gosh. It's like, uh, yeah. So I, I, um, I, I think that I like the sort of structural unity of Wuthering Heights a little better than I like the structural unity of Jane Eyre. So I guess that's where I decide. Also, I don't know if you knew this, but for Virginia Wolf, another uh, writer who I, you know, spent a lot of time oh reading God. about. Yes. She loved Wuthering Heights. She was one of her favorite novels. So, and she thought Jane Eyre was quite good, but not up to the sort of structural standards of Wuthering Heights, which is sort of interesting. <laughs> I love them both. I think they're both classics and everyone should read them. Um, even, you know, even sometimes you're forced to by your English teacher, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, I notoriously hate Jane Eyre. Um, <laughs> but uh, the thing about it is what I think Wuthering Heights does really well, and it's part of the structural issue, and mm-hmm. it's part of what you're addressing in this, mm-hmm. is what Wuthering Heights does really well is address trauma, mm-hmm. like, in a way that is sequential and, like, mirrors back and I don't think Jane Eyre does the same thing. And I mean, I know that, you know, people who love Jane Eyre are going to make an argument against that. But like, <laughs> but I think that what Wuthering Heights is really good at is that sort of breakdown of trauma begets trauma begets trauma. And yeah. your book is doing that pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah, it's the history of trauma. That's what so much... I think I'll end up writing a lot about that in both my books and in other things I've written is always sort of tracing the history of trauma back to try to understand it. And that's it. You're right. I think that Wuthering Heights does that beautifully, even tracing the names, you know? Mm. And well, then, mm-hmm. I, I'm a Catherine. 
Right, you're a Catherine, right? <laughs> Sigh. Um. <laughs> I, during the pandemic, Kemper has heard this story about 17 times, but <laughs> during the pandemic, I learned all the dance moves to the Kate Bush music video for uh. Wondering High. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that is perfect uh, yeah it was, it, was, it was okay. my exercise routine <laughs> uh, the obsession continues no i and for the record i do not hate wuthering heights i actually <laughs> quite i quite like wuthering heights but my my love is definitely with jane Eyre. there's actually another reference that you make quite a few times in the book which has, funnily enough, a connection to Christie. And this one really, really tickled me because it's as to the very last book that we covered for the podcast, in fact, which is yeah. Halloween Party. And without meaning to, you actually kind of schooled us uh, pretty hard because what you... <laughs> yes, in a good way, in a good way, John. Because what you do is that you quote Keats's Ode to the Nightingale very early on. Of course, the word nightingale is, you know, very significant in the book, as is the poem itself. And you quote some early stanzas here. I'll just read them out. Darkling, I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death. Called him soft names in many amused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. And this, of course, has to do sort of with the seductiveness of death. It has thematic resonance in your book. And the funny thing is that we unknowingly quoted this poem in our very last episode because we yeah. talked about how the working title for Halloween Party was Easeful Death. And I'm really embarrassed to say that neither of us picked up on the Keats reference. We were both like, that doesn't make any sense. What is that about? <laughs> anyway, let's go talk about Halloween for 20 minutes. So the it actually... So fast forward, uh, listeners, if you haven't read Halloween Party yet, but Easeful Death as a title is actually brilliant because it's a reference to the would-be death of Miranda when she's sort of drinking serenely from a golden goblet at, you know, in, at that scene of pagan sacrifice. And it's a brilliant title because it's a little bit of a clue. Because if the book had been called Easeful Death, it's like Christy is pointing you to Miranda and pointing you away from the murder that is the catalyst for the book, which is Joyce being drowned in an apple bobbing bucket. I mean, that is anything but easeful. So <laughs> I actually kind of wish that she kept it and then just quoted Keats. She could have easily had Poirot quote Keats because we know yeah. that he loves his romantic poets. He quotes Wordsworth all the time. So I wish she had kind of kept that and gone harder core. But I just want to point that out that we did not give Christy the credit that she always deserves. And I appreciate that. Um, there, We actually had a listener email us uh, right after the episode and point out, uh, this is actually quoting Keats. But uh, like immediately after that, I started reading your book and I was like, oh my God, there we go. A little <laughs> <Christy> connection. <laughs> you want to know something funny? So when I was going through titles for my book, one of them was Easeful Death. Oh my God, really? And then I was like, no one's going to know what that is. So I can't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay. This is like, this is where we're going to get into a little... I, I'm going to try to like highly avoid spoiler territory, mm -hmm. but your book title is a spoiler. Yeah. And, if, you're, if you're paying close attention. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it's very similar to that Keats mm -hmm. reference, right? Yeah. yeah. And I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about what your relationship also was to Ovid. Yeah. Well, so I think I, that's the particular story that, that plays a central role to the savage kind is a story that I've been fascinated with uh, from my days in college. Like I, 
it's just so atrocious. And I don't want to give away too much. I'm, 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 tra- I'm trading carefully here. Oh, yeah, try <laughs> carefully. It's okay. It's, it's, you know, it's, but it's a little bit. It's a it's an outlier story. A little bit. Because yeah. I don't think unless you read. Ovid, you're probably going to be very familiar with it. I think that a lot of the Greek is missing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there's fragments of the Greek. And mm-hmm. so Ovid was kind of taking some liberties there. Yes. So yeah. I think it's like not, it has a lot in common with the Oristia and with Medea, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's not as well known by far. Yeah, in fact, the, my the reason why I came across this story has to do with Shakespeare and Titus Andronicus, and mm. I remember in this was in my high school days going to see a performance of Titus Andronicus at uh, University of Virginia, done on a white stage, and buckets of blood were used by the end of that play. It was like the most traumatic kind of crazy. <laughs> In interpretation of that, I mean, it plays bloody as it is, but they're like, we're going to just like, it's going to be an all white stage and the whole thing's going to be pink by then. And like, they really went in, leaned hard with the special effects and stuff. So stuff was on stage that a lot of other performances will deal with sort of in a different way. But I was like, what is this? This is just nuts. And so <laughs> it just continued all the way through college. And that sort of came to it through... Um, I was actually a, a women's writers class that I was taking and learning about uh, Philomela and Prosny and, and or Procne, depending, I guess, who you ask. And I was like, what is the story? This is such a crazy story. What? I don't know. It just kind of sat with me. You know how some things will just get their hooks into you and you won't, you don't want to let them go. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so I think that that just kind of, you know, has, has been with me from the early on. The other thing that's super important about the metamorphosis is that I am talking about teenagers and, and change and the constant sort of their metamorphosis. And I think overall, all the, the three books that I have planned, or rather the two other books that I have planned, I want to continue to reference uh, the metamorphosis and, and with that idea of transformation constantly playing a role in their, their lives because they are becoming different things. And it's an ongoing process for them as it is with any teenager so mm-hmm. i think that's playing Can I ask an interesting question yeah. well i mean i hope it's an interesting question it might be a terrible <laughs> question i like um, you said that you're like could i ask an interesting question for a change <laughs> <laughs> these have all been interesting questions I sure <laughs> just you to know, shake things up could we get interesting for a second <laughs> um, so the thing about the story that you're using from yeah. the metamorphosis is that well, as I knew from a young kid, because I like played music a lot and like we did classics and like Johnny Mercer and like that kind of right. stuff. But like, I remember like performing as like a really awkward adolescent um, stardust at something. And like, I'm embarrassed to do this right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. But it's, you know, the line is the nightingale tells his fairy tale Mm. and female nightingales can't sing or speak Mm -hmm. and it's always the interesting thing about the story that you're using is that a female nightingale can't communicate yeah yeah in fact it's all that story is all about silencing 
it's I mean, all about silencing. Yeah. And I think that the idea of, of silencing women's voices, queer voices, um, God, especially, you know, in this time period that I'm, I'm looking at, but, you know, throughout time as well is there would be, you know, a, a, a thread probably through everything I'm going to write. Um, but certainly through the two books that I have written, so you, you have a myth that is a lot about silencing and horrible abuse and horrible violence, you know, and then not being able to tell the story about it. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, we're interestingly, and I don't know if I, you know, I didn't plan all this out to begin with, but both my books are a lot about the struggle to tell one story and how difficult it is to serve sort of do that. And it's, it's messy and you're often transgressive and trying to tell it because it's not a culture that wants to hear that story. Mm-hmm. And, um, certainly dodging and burning my first book has a lot of central characters constantly trying to find ways to tell the story. Then it's being filtered and the people who are actually taking the story and, you know, putting it together, assembling it, or, you know, they have their own things at stake in doing that. So, I think that the struggle to get a story out, to tell the truth about the past, and that's true for, I think, why one of the things that I'm really drawn to with mystery fiction, detective fiction, but there's always sort of a struggle to tell the story. And one of the things that's satisfying about mystery fiction is that you get, the st- you eventually do get the story, right? You, you get to find out what, what was hidden, you know? And so it feels like something being unsilenced a little bit at that point. So I think that's part of also, particularly that, that story is I'm drawn to. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do think that, you know, we always, we always try as hard as we can to bring things back to Christy, of course, on this podcast. And I think that having the solution of to the mystery rest partially on an understanding of an of a tale is yeah. actually a very Christy thing to do because she, yeah, she does, you know, despite the nursery rhyme stuff, which yeah. we have called out, we're not necessarily huge fans of. I understand why she did it. It was often, you know, a nice sort of structural mm-hmm. framework that she could use. She does it. It worked a few times. Oh yeah. It worked a few times. Didn't work a few other times, yeah. but um, <laughs> uh, worked pretty well with, and then there were none. Right. But she also makes a lot of highbrow references. I mean, actually, again, just to bring up Halloween party, uh, Uh, You know, by the end, one of the ways that we can understand one of the characters is that she's Lady Macbeth in modern day. And she was making those sorts of Shakespearean references all the time and other kind of highbrow references. So that felt very much in keeping, actually, with what Christie would do. And I mean, I think what I find fascinating about this book is that we've sort of already touched on the fact that you're writing within a male tradition, but with a, you know, a female focus, which is already kind of a transgressive thing to do. And I guess it's partially because I know that you are a fan of Christy, you know, you were a fan of our podcast before, but it felt to me like you were doing a lot of detective fictiony things also like within a, a noir framework and that the yeah. mystery really does function as much more of a puzzle mystery within a noir framework, certainly than a traditional noir, which is not a puzzle mystery whatsoever. Right, um, right. And you, you know, you even have this moment, which I loved, which is so funny where our kind of omniscient narrator, one of these girls now, now as a woman is saying, okay, well, you can probably tell by the number of pages that are left 
that, you know, there's more to tell here. And you're probably thinking to yourself, I hope this isn't just going to be one long <laughs> denouement. And like, that is exactly what readers, astute readers of detective fiction do. You kind of check, you were like, okay, it seems like the mystery solved, but mm, I've got 50 pages rather than 10 <laughs> pages to go. So I'm pretty sure there's more here. And I mean, I think you're constantly just kind of weaving in these two sort of like distinct subgenres, which normally don't really go together, but you're, you're kind of, you know, bringing in traditions from both, which I really appreciated. I mean, I love classical detective fiction and the, the sort of the, the beauty of a, of a wonderfully, you know, plotted uh, mystery novel is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I enjoy that as much as, I mean, I'm, I'm really a character based writer, but I, I think that there's something about that structure, which I find fascinating. And I think as with anything, the only times that it really, I, I, I wish sometimes it wouldn't tie things up quite as neatly as sometimes it does. Uh, I like it when it leaves, I like it when it's satisfying, but leaves some, you know, there's some space for interpretation. Um, and so like trying to balance those two things is an interesting, it's, it's certainly one of the, I guess, goals or, or challenges I set for myself with this book and perhaps the last one too is like how do you balance character in this sort of class it is a mystery ultimately and it, yeah. it is it functions that way and it has a lot of these things that i love in agatha christie um this the things that i'm stealing from her essentially you know and uh, you know and i try to steal a few things and mix them up and pull them in and you know so i think that that's you know, because she did them so well and there's so much to sort of play around with. But then I have this other thing going on too, which is the, the noir stuff. Which is yeah. the noir. Yeah. yeah. Well, I I think, you know, we've we've talked about this. I feel like we haven't mentioned it in a while, so it's worth repeating. I mean, I think in a lot of the best Christies, such as Five Little Pigs or even Evil yes. Under the Sun, the solving of the puzzle hinges on character and it hinges yes. on understanding who these people really are. And then once we do, the puzzle pieces fall into place and we realize who done it. And um, that's very much what you're doing here. I mean, there's this central mystery of who are these girls? Are they good? Are they bad? Of course, because this is a complex story with complex characters. They're both. Um, But, you know, part of the central mystery rests on how involved is perhaps one of these girls in the murders that, that happened in the course of the story. And I think there's some uncertainty there that you build into the end of the, the very, very end of the book in a really intriguing way that still though, I think does not mar the satisfaction that we need as mystery readers. So again, being able to do that too, just blur those lines slightly, give us some loose ends that will kind of carry us over into the next book. And you do, I mean, the subtitle of this book is that it's book one within a trilogy, the Nightingale trilogy, right? So to the extent that you can, I'm very curious as to what you're planning on doing in books two and three. You kind of referenced it already a little bit. Yeah, well, I, believe it or not, I've outlined them both. I felt like wow. I had to before I sent this one out into the world. I was like, oh, I think I need to know where all this is headed. Ultimately, I mean, you know, with outlining, you you never you're never 100 percent sure that's going to go the way that you've outlined. But essentially, I have a structure in place. But yeah, they. So the next book is um, set in 1954, and the last book's 1963. And in 1954, the girls are very much, you know, becoming young women and and dealing with their feelings towards each other and and various other complexities that were left over from this first one Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their relationship and their way they see themselves in the world. 
And then they get wrapped up in a mystery that is connected to their love of detective fiction. I don't want to say too much, but I'm having a lot of fun. Let's put it this way. One, there will be another main major character, and that character is, in a sense, in the first book, but you wouldn't know it. So you yeah, was very intrigued. I'm, I'm, I'm being a, a, a big tease right now, but yeah. essentially it's really, it's, it was, I'm going to have a fun with it, but there's always going to be that theme of looking at also writing and that self-referential writer thing you know, where you're looking at the actual craft of the thing that you're writing a little bit, I guess it's a little metafictional. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last one picks up uh, in 63 when they're meeting uh, as they are promised to meet in that last letter. The, the, mm-hmm. Which isn't giving away too much, I think. But I think that uh, ultimately, I'm trying to pull them back together and see what does it feel like to be them in 1963. You know, how has life changed, or has it changed that much? Um, and who have they become? So I, I, essentially, that's the overarching project. It's it's all a little um, Ian McEwen as well. I think there's a lot of the it's sort of like metafictional narrative, and I mean that is a big compliment. Also, yeah. I mean I'm, I'm a big Ian McEwen fan. I like how he plays around with you know assemblage and and sort of the editorial features of creating a story and from a distance, et cetera, et cetera. episode is brought to you by best fiends Catherine, can you think of a word that rhymes with gobble oh no please don't tell me you're trying to do some turkey themed poem for best fiends camper don't make my howie dress up in feathers in a waddle i beg of you Oh, no, it's more about the way the fiends gobble up slugs, making them disappear as players work their way through ingenious and lightly entertaining puzzle after puzzle. But now that you mention it, the word gobble does have double entendre potential. And waddle, too. You've inspired me. Oh, dear. Okay, how's this? Waddling across my screen, they gobble slugs, they reign supreme. On this holiday of Thanksgiving, I give them all my thanks for winning. Waddle, waddle, gobble, gobble. These fiends are the best. No squabble. That is really an embarrassment to Stanford's English department, Kemper. (laughs) Agreed. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. I'm actually curious, just writerly question. I'm curious how you wrote this because it's dual perspectives and they're very much back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We have these different would-be journal slash diary entries and the voices are very distinct. That's part of why the book is good, that they do feel like they're written by different people, even though you obviously wrote both. I do also love there's a variation in fonts. Philippa has the more serif kind of, yeah. you know, curly font, which is very, you know, very much in keeping with her character. And Judy's more stark kind of sans serif, which which right. makes sense. But the passages pick up uh, one after the other down to the second sometimes in the narrative. So I would have thought that you wrote one and then you wrote the other to stay within, uh, you know, to keep the voices distinct. But I'm wondering if you actually did follow the narrative since they are so back and forth or maybe a combination of both. Just how how did you actually write this? Yeah, it was a long journey, um, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> so originally, I I wrote this in the third person, close, just on Philippa. 
Interesting. It didn't work very well. And my agent told me that. (laughs) And I went back in. I was like, you know, I really think maybe this needs to be a first person. I think that I'm holding myself too much at a distance from these characters. And that if you just, you know, essentially put yourself in their shoes, it's going and you really sort of feel the character out. It's going to be better. And as soon as I did that, I realized I, I really needed Judy too. And so um, I had the plot. I had most of the plot at that point figured out. And then sometimes it was about recasting particular scenes from a different perspective. So I really wrote like some scenes from Philip's perspective and then switched them to Judy's. Um, and then I realized I need more sort of from Judy. And then I discovered all kinds of new stuff at the end. Um, a lot of the, you know, the final kind of twist, I guess, came late in the game, actually. I, I kind of just sort of had an aha moment and realized that this is what was kind of something I wanted to do as a sort of way of balancing a little bit, I think, ultimately the end and throwing some things into question. But I think that, you know, certainly, you know, it just took a lot of process. So I think essentially there was a lot of plot in place before I fully you know, pulled out the different perspectives and, and, and cast them. Um, and yeah. you know, they are, so. I didn't, I didn't realize this until you were just, just giving that answer. But I think that the first person perspective works really well also because, uh, young adult novels are almost uniformly from a first person perspective, not always, yeah. but, but usually, and yeah, you, know, cause you need that, the, that close kind of, you know, you basically need to be inside the head of a teenager to understand a teenager. And um, I think that really works here. Like, I think it's crucial that it's first person with the two of them. That's, it's a part of why you're able to, I think, have as many sort of like character revelations as, as you have in the course of the book. So, yeah. And I think then I did that. I decided, okay, you want close. So I'm gonna make it close and immediate making them journal entries, which is this Mm -hmm. weird space between reflective and in the moment. Yes. <laughs> Journal entries, they're happening, but they're not happening right. You know, it's not like when the, that the events are actually occurring, we're getting it, but there's not a lot of time. Um, so there's a little time for reflection, but not a lot. Um, and that's where the sort of the, the frame became really useful in terms of creating that d- uh, moments where we had a little more zoom out and distance from, you know, the narrative. Um, and it, Yeah. And it becomes believable that if someone is actually archiving and editing and assembling and fiddling a little bit, right? Or a lot with these journal entries that they could be made to follow a narrative as closely as they are. I think it goes a lot toward the credibility of the narrative. It's just, you know, a noir written from the perspective of dueling girls' diary entries is just so transgressive of noir. (laughs) Of, of, you know, Raymond Chandler, it's like... I mean, I love noir, but sometimes I just can't help rolling my eyes at just, like, the guyness of it. I'm just like, oh, God. Like, it's just... it's I I just... I love... Wait, you don't like the description of the Santa Annas? I love that. They're so brilliant. I mean, I actually am a huge fan of noir, but... But, oh, God. A little bit goes a long way. (laughs) Also, so much about noir it's like we're not getting a character that's sitting around thinking about their emotions that's mm-hmm. almost the opposite it's like commentary on the world and and you know it's almost like the, the male gaze captures it and interprets it for us you know 
And so this is like, you know, a diary entry is the opposite. It's like all the sort of inter- in, internal introspection is what the word I'm looking for. But then they're also sort of re- reacting and things are happening, but it's just a very different point of view. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like every PI in an, in a traditional noir is secretly Ernest Hemingway. Like yeah. that's just sometimes how it reads to me. Like it's just, it's that kind of externalized Uber male kind of thing going on, which is, which is fascinating, but, but yes. Well, apparently Hemingway was, you know, inspired, influenced by Ham, Hammett. So, I mean, I'm not surprised. I think there's a strong connection between those two and it may flow the other way. <laughs> Maybe yeah. 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 I mean, I'm, did either of you write diaries when you were young? I did some, yeah, but not, uh, it felt kind of in and out occasionally. I did more just my own writing in a diary, but it wasn't like, hey, this is how my day went. It was more like, I'm going to write a short story now. And, you know, and I, was- I am not a diarist whatsoever. What about you, Catherine? Uh, no, not really, but I did find one. Uh, in a drawer that I'd had and I was reading it. It was like horrifying. It was <laughs> just like, I want it to, I, I think it's still in the back of the drawer, but I want it to burn it because it just was so overwrought. <laughs> no. And- <laughs> no. Teenage journal being overwrought. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it was like it was like from when I was like in college, I was like 19. It was real fancy. I bought it like someplace in New York City. It was like lambskin. And <laughs> um, there's clear places where I'd ripped pages out of it at some point, which must have been extra embarrassing. but yeah i know some people do it but it's not a thing that i ever did actually well i think it's really interesting because i think people write journals it's not just i think sometimes they write them for posterity and you know i think that there's a sense of performance going on Mm -hmm. you know when you're writing your own journal which i i love that i think that's kind of i think it's kind of hysterical that we're writing this really private thing but we're kind of performing for posterity too and kind of hoping they'll be found and you know that the uh, that sort of you know that teenage sort of like hugeness of emotion will be then looked back on as a sort of great romance. You know, <laughs> um, I, I just love that. <laughs> yeah, there's such like art- artifice. That's what I've always felt whenever I've tried to write a yeah. journal. I just feel like if if it's truly a thought I'm having with myself, I just think it. And the only reason that I do want to put it to paper is that I want someone else to read it. And right. that performative aspect of it just creeps in immediately. And I, and I immediately am disgusted by it for my, for myself. That's why it's never, it's always been a non-starter for me, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think always I'm more interested in reading collections of letters because letters are performative too, obviously. Sure. sure. But at the same time, like if you were bothering to handwrite a letter you were spending the time to handwrite it to tell somebody something specific. And so I find them much more interesting than I find diaries in general. Mm -hmm. Um, There's more nuance when there's a back and forth, you know? So, I mean, I think that that's really interesting. I hope I'm not spoiling something, but again, I think that we should be distrusting the diaries in your novel. Yeah. So I um I liked that a lot. 
Yeah. Well, I had fun. I had a lot of fun. So I was, one of the things that, you know, since the whole unreliable narrator thing has been such a, a big, you know, gone girl moving forward. I mean, we've always had unreliable narrators, but in terms of crime and everything, that was certainly this big moment. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, why don't we just be like upfront? And what if I had a narrator sort of say, I'm unreliable. <laughs> <laughs> And you're going to read it anyway, you know, um, yep. and maybe there's even a reason for me to be unreliable. But like, I think that instead of being kind of tricky, I'm warning you, you know, um, and so which I think all I think just what fiction is in a lot of ways. So I think honestly, I think I think nonfiction, especially memoir, you know, anything personal, it's a little bit you're dealing with an interpretation of the truth. You're not dealing sure. with the truth, right? And um, so we should always be aware, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, well, who, again, who cares who murdered Roger Ackroyd? Right. I think we do. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah. But I mean, I, we, I mentioned this recently on a different podcast, but like something like Lolita mm-hmm. is a complete, completely unreliable narrator but you know it pretty much up front mm-hmm. you're pretty clear on that you're, you're being put on notice right mm-hmm. like from yeah. from the get-go which is which is what you're doing as well but it's still you can still be quite effective actually with being unreliable even though you've put your your reader on notice which i like because what you're doing is you're playing fair and that's so yeah. important in the mystery genre um i'm really curious so i i believe that your first agatha christie that you read was her last, which was sleeping murder. That You're right. <laughs> which is really interesting. I So, you know, I have to ask, because we always have to ask what your favorite Christie is and just what kind of... Wait, wait, no, no, no. I want to interrupt for one second yeah. because we are covering on our Patreon, P.D. James cover her face. Mm-hmm. And obviously sleeping murder was also possibly going to be titled cover her face which mm-hmm. is obviously a reference to the duchess of melfi right. and so i just think it like is a really neat circle that you have all of these sort of literary references within yours which is really really also referential back to somebody like christy who likes to add them into her own work Yes, it's funny that we are going to be, co- be covering Cover Her Face, the P.D. James novel, which um, I love. I know Catherine loves it. We're both huge P.D. James fans. I think that um, I'm a little miffed, actually, that she had to rename her Cover Her Face manuscript with Sleeping Murder, because I think it would have been a much better title, actually. Yeah. And it's so true. I mean, Christy just peppers all of her mysteries with these literary references, as you do. But is that your favorite Christy, then, since it was your first? Or do you have another? And, you know, since you're a mystery writer, I assume that Christy was pretty formative and important to you. So I'm just curious what she's meant sort of in your life as both a reader and a writer. Yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, I love Christy. Um, I, you know, I really started by watching the movies, um, the death in the Nile and, mm-hmm. um, evil under the sun. I like rewatched those movies. I was, I don't know how old I was like nine or something. I just kept on rewatching them over and over again. Could I just, uh, sorry, can I just yeah. interject since you mentioned evil under the sun? Cause we've never talked about this, but evil under the sun is a really, <laughs> for, for some obvious reasons, I think that a lot of gay men uh, identify evil under the sun as like a really important Christie. 
Um, (laughs) Because there's almost no campier movie than that movie. It is... Wow. I mean, we covered it, but it's just really funny that you referenced Evil Under the Sun. I just kind of want to shout that out there because we never have before. Would you agree with yeah. that? Oh, absolutely. It's 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 so campy and fun. And I mean, it's and clever, you know, and I think that, it, you know, I, 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 I adore it. I remember my family when we were skiing someplace and it was on HBO or something and I stopped skiing, just come home and rewatch it over and over again. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what was, you know, what, what my obsession was, but it, clearly Christy was formative for me. And um, I did end up just randomly reading Sleeping Murder. It Honestly, I like it now better than I did as when I was that age. It's just, it was just a little slow for me when I was, you know, whatever, how old I was, 12 or whatever it was. But um, I think that, you know, my favorite Christie, that's, it's really hard. Well, Five Little Pigs. I'm so glad you guys have Five Little Pigs. I was like, I was hoping. Heights and Five Little Pigs, John. Yeah. You see why I would like, you know, know, I think that it's just, you know, she's really, and I think people don't read it as much as they should. So um, I I think then uh, Murder is Announced is one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. too. Really good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both are just wonderful, but it's kind of hard to pick pick one that is my favorite. Um, well, I'm going to, so fun to watch, you know, let's do you guys try to sort out all the, <laughs> and rate the rank and rate the, the Christie's <laughs> of our, our impossible task that we've set ourselves yeah, to for totally years impossible. now, <laughs> our Sisyphean task, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to ask an even harder question then, which is Poirot or Marple. You have to choose. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, Marple. Yes. Yeah. I knew um, it. Yeah. And I tell you why I think that I really love the sort of amateur detective. I think I love the way she's always sort of embeds or is embedded in the stories and the best marbles are where it's more natural, more natural that she's embedded in them, I think. And I love that insider kind of look insider outsider sort of role she has where, well, certainly Poirot is an outsider, but he's, he is often being invited to investigate, you know, cause that's his role. Right. And mm-hmm. um, so I love the sort of way that Marple works and uh, yeah. And then, you know, some of my favorite ones, I love murder is announced. And I love, I do like a mirror's cracked side to side, it, even with its flaws. I think it's a little twist. It's, it, it's so ingenious. Um, that's another one I fell in love with kind of early too. I think I was watching the, the Liz Taylor version of that. <laughs> which, which has a lot of uh, the same DNA with Evil Under the Sun. I mean, it's the yeah. same, I, I, definitely the same producer. And I think it might even be the same director. It has that same sort of yeah. camp element to it. You know, I've never heard that distinction made between Marple and Poirot as to the investigative act itself in that she's even an outsider as to the investigation. She always has to worm her way in somehow. And Christy has to be creative about figuring it out. Whereas even though, yes, Poirot is Belgian, et cetera, et cetera, he's a detective, right? He is, you know, that's what he does. That's his job. That's really interesting. I never thought about that before. No. Um, 
Catherine's just reeling from the fact that you picked Marple. She doesn't know, even know what to do. Like, so, are you upset? Are you upset at me? After <laughs> after doing Wuthering Heights and Five Little Pigs, she thought she had you squarely in her camp, and she's devastated. I know. Where are you on board with my dark Marple theory? Is my only question. <laughs> I I'm on, oh, okay. Think about my book. I'm all for dark Marple. Yes. Yeah, you totally, yes. Okay. Then we're you then we're cry. super good. Right. <laughs> you basically created young dark Marple. Let's be honest. I, that maybe that's a little bit of a spoiler. Not really. <laughs> uh, no. Maybe that's where they'll end up. Maybe it's just uh, that's Marple's coming of age story. Someone should write that. Have they? I don't even know if they have, but that would be interesting. I Young Marple. Yeah, there was a, a 10 or 15 years ago, wasn't Jennifer Garner? Yeah, it, got, like a young it, it was not even 10 years ago, I don't think. I think it was more recent than that. And everybody yeah. was like, absolutely not. I no. love Jennifer Garner. Like, don't get me wrong, but not for that. I think that that oh, was yeah, not. I love right. Alias. Yeah. Um, I have one other question just because of, okay, this is a spoiler thing. And so mm-hmm. we can cut it if you want. But are you a huge fan of imitation of life? Oh, I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just, yeah. Just wanted to check in on that because it seemed relevant to this conversation and yes. to your novel. Yes, absolutely. Imitation of Life. And then, of course, Far From Heaven, Todd Haynes, which is also directly referencing, you know, Imitation of Life and sort of looking at this time period and then the outsider or the other, you know, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ or racial other, it is definitely playing a role in, mm-hmm. in my series and uh, or my, my trilogy. It just seemed like when I read it, all I could think when I finished it was, oh, somebody really likes Imitation of Life. so uh i i remember seeing it i was studying uh, abroad in london in college and i saw it in a movie theater and it was me and every single other person in there was a gay man (laughs) 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 and it was um i mean i love that movie but it it just like has real resonance to this book too Mm -hmm. Great. I mean, Trey, you guys are you guys are picking up on a lot that I'm, I'm not sure everyone was picking up on when I'm I was putting all this stuff in there. And not that that's the point. I mean, people should be able to enjoy it just how they enjoy it. But part of the fun for me as a writer is to layer layer references, layer inspiration in. I mean, I think we're always as writers. I'm not speak for other words, but I as a writer, I'm always trying to nod my head at the things that I felt passionate about whether it's a film or it's a, a a book or whatever it's, you know, Christie or whatever, you know, it's, there are all these little nods in there to the, the things that you formed us, I guess. You know, I'm, if you're comfortable with it, I think we should leave that in because I think if anyone is a fan of those films, they're just going to be like, okay, I guess I need to read this book. <laughs> um, and if you're yeah. not, then you're not, you know, it's it, like you said, you, you don't need the references, but I think all they do is they deepen, they sort of enhance you know, your appreciation of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been a joy, as we knew it would, a delight, if you will, John. (laughs) Um, I really appreciate you uh, sitting down with us. And again, uh, if it wasn't clear, we both loved this book. We think that um, there's so much to appreciate here for any mystery fan. And we encourage you all to 
purchase a copy at your independent bookstore and support John and uh, the mystery genre overall, especially in its more uh, transgressive sorts of offerings. <laughs> and we're really excited for the next one. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It has been uh, it has been delightful. Um, <laughs> and see, we made it happen all the way. We around. made it happen. Needless to say, we had a lovely conversation with John. I think you could probably tell from all of the gushing and just the general fanning out that we were doing as to his book, as to Agatha Christie and everything in between. We obviously encourage you to buy The Savage Kind, again, from an indie bookstore. If you can, you can always do those purchases online if you're still not going to the brick and mortar shops quite yet. We understand that, but it is still very possible to go to bookshop.org, for example, or, you know, lots of bookstores have their own websites, et cetera, et cetera. As we also mentioned in the interview, there is going to be a book two and a book three. So if you like the book as much as we did, stay tuned because there's a lot more from John and these characters. So for our next episode, we are going to be covering a Poirot short story. That would be How Does Your Garden Grow? Some interesting connections between that and our latest novel that we covered, Halloween Party. So we'll be talking a lot about that. And it's always just a delight to cover Poirot, isn't it? Always. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. So you can, of course, check out our bonus content over at www.patreon.com slash all about Agatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on our various social media accounts. On Twitter, we are at allaboutthedame and Catherine is at Robcat. And our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. Uh, if you haven't yet done so, please do give us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.